This is Sarah Rose Solly, founder and executive director of the nonprofit organization The Usual Art Specs, and you are listening to the Trauma Barbie podcast. Our main goal is to share conversations that will help end the stigma surrounding mental health and trauma. Each episode, I aim to share what I've learned on my own healing journey and also through starting a nonprofit that serves survivors of physical and sexual violence. Though some of these topics may be heavy, we vow to approach this conversation differently and more authentically than you've ever heard it before. We're here to advocate for women, education, and mental health, while also embracing the art of comedy and powerful healing vibrations of laughter. In other words, we try to not take ourselves too seriously. Today we have an incredible guest, someone I have had the pleasure of knowing for a few years now. She's a keynote speaker, a consultant, a coach, and a huge advocate and activist for survivors of sexual abuse. It is my honor to introduce the Dr. Lavinia Masters. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much. I'm like, yeah, somebody should be cheering. (laughs) Yes. I'm going to add in some some cheers, some some audio. That sounds fun. Thank you for having me, Sarah. I'm so excited to be. I'm honored, actually, to be with you and sharing your presence and knowing the work that you do and the voice that you have. So thank you. Oh, well, thank you so much. We met about two years back at an event put on by The Turning Point, formerly known as the Rape Crisis Center of Collin County. And this was event for Sexual Assault Awareness Month. I was there as part of the Gallery of Courage that year, and you were the keynote speaker. And you shared your story, as well as what led to House Bill 8, the Lavinia Masters Act, which we will dive into more in just a moment. But I wanted to begin today with some of the basics and some background information for those listening that maybe are not as familiar with your work. You are a Texas native, originally from Waco. So what brought you to DFW? Uh, My mom. (laughs) Uh, We were born in Waco, uh, Texas. I have very few memories of it. I think we left when I was maybe five years old. So I have very few memories of Waco, Texas. We would go back every year for like family reunions or what have you. But my entire family, which was a big, huge family, um, my grandmother had 11 children and those children begat other children and those children begat other children are still begatting today. So Waco is, uh, we're probably related if you're from Waco. So we were always told don't date or marry anybody out of Waco, Texas. You do so many different things. You wear a lot of hats, as I mentioned, as a coach, a mentor, an inspirational public speaker, an author, and an activist. Do one or more of those labels resonate with you more than the others? What what do you personally identify with the most, or what do you specialize in? I think I identify most as an advocate, because I'm always advocating for survivors in any way or any round that I can. And then uh, I coach next as far as coaching individuals beyond trauma. But I would say actually advocate because I really find joy. And that's like the first thing I do. I'm running to advocate, speak, raise awareness, uh, making sure justice is served. If justice is not served, fighting it, uh, just all of that. So I'm, I'm, I'm that advocate first. It's just, it's just sketched in my brain to be an advocate. 
and humor me for a moment. I know you mentioned you're not a big fan of Barbie, which is totally yeah. okay. And whether you've seen the new movie out or not, what would your Barbie identity be if you had to choose? If I had to choose for Barbie, and, I, and no offense to people that love Barbie, Barbie is great. But I was always a baby that away when I grew up. It was this doll and she crawled and she went back and forth. And I was so fascinated with baby that away. I, I guess because she was thicker and Barbie was skinnier. I don't know what it was. But um, if I was a Barbie, I would I would say maybe Justice Barbie, willing to fight the justice for others. So I would, I would be Justice Barbie. You've been doing justice and advocacy work for survivors of sexual abuse for 21 years now and 30 years you've been a speaker on this cause. It's amazing how when you have a love for your calling or your purpose and when you walk in it, you don't really keep tabs of what, what you do, how long you do, you've done it and, and how far you've come. You just do it. It's just a part of you. So when I sat down to do pen to paper, when you asked me, that, I was like, wow, it's it's been a minute. <laughs> it's been a minute. And it's, it's funny because I, I know some other advocates that's been in the game longer are actually CEOs of uh, crisis centers. They're like, I remember your name back in 1998. I'm like, really? Has it been that long? But yeah, it's it's been a minute You just because you've just done the work. Where does that passion come from? Can you tell us a little bit about your story? Yes, uh, I can. That passion comes from me being a survivor of not only childhood sexual abuse, but a heinous rape at the age of 13 years old. Someone had broken to our home when I was 13 and raped me at knife point in the Dallas area. And I didn't know who it was, where he came from, why he chose me, but he stole my innocence away. And when I realized he took more than just my innocence as a child that night, he took like the way I lived, the way I thought, the way I processed things, the way I encountered people, the way I handled things, just just my whole way of living is what happened when you're violated in that manner. And so I found out, uh, then I had an encounter with the police department that was not pleasant as far as asking me questions, as far as was I sure it wasn't my boyfriend, did I let the perpetrator in the window, and uh, was I having sex and not wanting my mother to know. And that later taught me that they started the precept with, within me of not believing. I knew they didn't believe in me as a victim, which meant they didn't see me as a victim. Or not even a child is that much. So that really set me in a very dark place as a victim of sexual violence. And like I said, I already dealt with childhood sexual abuse, but I think that was more of a shock. And it thrust me like in some sort of matrix as a victim that I had not even focused on the childhood sexual abuse anymore. But fast forward, as I uh, begin to overcome and try to come out of that victim mentality, which I had to because I decided to accept my husband's hand in marriage and I wanted to be a better person for not just him, but for myself. And then when we brought a child into the picture. I was like, oh my God, what have I done? I have really got to work on this person. What I saw was that we didn't have, if we had it, I didn't know about it, the resources. Uh, we didn't have the advocates that spoke out, the advocates that raised awareness, the advocates that tell you it's going to be okay. Didn't have anyone to say you can overcome this trauma. Didn't have anyone to tell me that this, the things that I was feeling, the emotions, the psychological things, that I was going through were, were normal for a victim. So this began to fuel me in my healing processes where the things I didn't see or the things that I lacked 
as a victim needing to survive and, and thrive in society, I vowed, you know, to God that I would make them happen for others. And so that's how I began this path of speaking out and at whatever the cost was, because I know it was a blessing to survive that night with that knife to my throat by that stranger uh, who was adamant on taking my innocence. And I didn't know if I was going to live or die. And so with that, I knew that there was something greater for me to do. I knew that I had a purpose uh, in life. And then I began to understand that this pain no matter how traumatic it was to me, that it was it was for it was for a reason, and I know some people may say that's idiotic to say. No, it's not. Uh, it's not. It's really not because you have to look beyond things that happen to you that are traumatic. You have to look beyond a lot of things. If not, you get stuck in a rut, or you'll be in a place where you feel completely hopeless, as if nothing else is is meant for you to do. So you have to change your mindset and look at things in a different perspective so you can change the whole trajectory of your life and your healing processes. And so that's exactly what I did. And that that fuels even now me to continue to fight in my passion of giving back and then going back to rescue others because I later learned uh, 21 years later as I was doing my healing processes that my rape evidence or my rape kit was sitting on a shelf which mean that uh, my justice system uh, had basically forgotten about me. And that really set a fire under me instead of me being angry, knowing that I couldn't prosecute because I was told I missed two statute of limitations, that something had to be done because if I don't do this, who will? And I know we can say, well, somebody eventually will, but when and who? And I put myself out there because I felt that it was, it was worth it, not just for me and my healing, but for others. I just... I have to commend you on so many levels because first of all I've I've heard you speak on advocacy now a couple of different times and everyone in the room feels that passion that you have your delivery and your message is full of hills and valleys where you have us laughing at one moment and then in tears the next. You've truly found a way to take something so vile and dark and turn it into a positive way to help others. And I can only imagine that sharing your story and sharing those details of your assault can be exhausting, you know, over and yeah. over. Not to mention having to be so vulnerable all the time, talking about a subject that unfortunately is still considered a bit taboo. So mm -hmm. so what keeps you motivated year after year? What keeps me motivated is basically, like I said, my faith in God. My faith and knowing that others will have that opportunity of hope. If you've lived in a space, and I know you've experienced traumatic experiences in your life, if you lived in that space of darkness and you felt so alone for so long, you have to make a conscious decision that I'm not going back. I, I refuse to live there. I refuse to even just look at it anymore. If I go or if I'm there, it's because I'm rescuing somebody else. And so that drives me. It drives me because I want to live my best life. I, I bring laughter. I do my grandma shenanigans because it's it's just peaceful for me. And, and I realize the things that meant to destroy me, you didn't do that. And I'm not going to allow you to do that. And that's what I want others to see. You have that power to not allow it to take hold and put you in that rut that you believe you have to stay in. I'm, I'm so glad you brought up the laughter because we talk about a lot on this podcast, how healing laughter can be. And that's that's been one of my 
personal ways to heal. And you mentioned your spirituality as well. And I think so many people can relate to that. I know I certainly can. There's nothing that can take the place and support of a higher power, especially when you've been, again, at rock bottom these these symptoms and the the trauma the act itself is only the beginning of this journey of just a a spiral uh, of things that unless you've experienced it you just no one can even imagine can you take us through a little bit more about the Lavinia Masters Act what was the process of creating and I know in I believe 2019 that's when Governor Abbott signed the act but When did you start working on this? What were some of those first initial steps? When we started on the Lavinia Masters Act, I didn't even know it was the Lavinia Masters Act. I actually started, like you know my fight, when I found out in 2005 that these kids were on the shelves, I started my own fight. And I didn't know where to begin. I just began, I wrote the president, I wrote the governor, which was Rick Perry at the time. I'm writing everybody. I'm writing, I'm going to my legislators in my area, knocking on their doors. I'm like, oh my God, do you know that there are about half a million red kids on shelves uh, nationwide, about 20, over 20,000 statewide in the state of Texas. Some would say no, some would say yes. Some would say I got my information wrong. Some say I don't understand the law. I mean, I got all kind of runarounds, but I kept pounding the pavement. Like I was looking for a job or something. And I and I knew it was personal. This is personal, even though I knew that I couldn't prosecute. After the assault, I had five years. And then during that time, the laws changed. I had 10 years after my 18th, 18th birthday. But nobody ever notified me of that. So I didn't know. I started advocating then. I started advocating then. And then uh, different senators would pick me up to want to speak for them. And, you know, and uh, I think that was uh, Pennsylvania. Louisiana, different states was warning me, and then even Texas and the coroner, um, Senator Wendy Davis at the time, and they would pick me up and speak. Ted Poe, who's now retired, uh, said I was the voice behind the SAFER Act, the federal act for the uh, money for funding for rape kits and different things of that nature. And I just I just kept fighting and fighting. And then the, the beautiful part was when Senator Wendy Davis, we were like a, a dynamic duo speaking for victims of sexual violence. And so she lost that bid. And when she lost that bid, she referred me to Victoria Nyave. Victoria had seen during the Me Too movement, she saw the video, I Am Evidence, and she was like, oh, I have to get involved. What can we do? So I had been on the Congress uh, Task Force for Sexual Violence, been to Washington with that previously, been to the Justice Department. They flew me out to D.C. I've even been with Mariska Hargitay, uh, her organization, Joyful Heart. A foundation about the uh, backlog and get, gave my ideas. I think it was 2009, 2010. We end up being in Congress again together in 2017, her and I on that task force. And so I had just been working, working. And like I said, wasn't keeping tabs. I'm like, I was just the voice in the face for uh, the rape kit backlog because of the injustices I saw that victims had. And then we got the task force together. So finally they came up, we came up with the resolution. And when they came up with the resolution, she said, we're going to name it after you, the Lavinia Masters Act, House Bill 8. And I was on the phone like, huh? No. (laughs) And she was like, yes. I'm like, no. And I started crying. When she presented it to the house and when she went before the house, it was unanimous. And I was in tears. I remember watching from the school and they were like, because I went out the room and I was watching on my phone. They're like, Lavinia, you okay? I was like in tears. 
uh, because I felt like I had my day in court finally. And I was like, oh my God, they see me. They finally see this little black girl that was raped in the projects. And it was just amazing. And then it went to the Senate and I can't think of what you call him, but the head person over Senate, he told me, he called my name. Over the years, I've always testified for other laws of victims of sexual violence in Texas. Like I said, I've been doing this for years. They would call me, I'd go to Austin. And he's, he, he was always the one to give us a hard time, always. He called my name and I stood up. I was like, oh Lord, here we go. I stood up and he goes, Lavinia, he said, do you want this law to pass? And I looked, I mean, it was crowded. The room was crowded and I was kind of embarrassed. And I said, I know this man is not about to try to embarrass me because Lord, I might embarrass him back. And I'm like, but I can't allow this law to be in jeopardy because of my personal issues. And I said, yes, sir, I do. And he said, good. He said, because it's going to pass. You don't have to worry about anything. He said, if you want to wait here all day and do a testimony, you can. He said, but if not, because they had a long day. I mean, it was packed. He said, uh, he said, yours is first on my list. He said, it's going to pass. You have nothing to worry about. You're free to go. And I looked around in shock and everybody was looking at me and they kind of clapped. And I'm like, this is not a normal hearing. And I left and he said, but don't tell anybody. I went right outside to the garage and I said, and I got on Facebook live and I'm like, it's going to pass, it's going to pass. But I'm not supposed to tell you guys. <laughs> it was so funny. But later on, uh, I think it was like a month later before the Senate, it was unanimous again. And I was just shaking and I was in tears. And I listened to Victoria again and they had me stand up. And I felt like I finally had my day in court. And I felt that she was my lawyer that God had appointed for me to be my voice and speak for me. And it was just, uh, it was an amazing and phenomenal day. Somebody finally saw us. They're finally fighting for us. We have a voice. Do you realize how powerful we are? And we didn't even realize it. So I was really living in those moments for those years. And it's like, now I'm like, oh, okay. I am House Bill 8, the Lavinia Masters Act. So that's why I say it the way I say it. And people don't get it like, but the Lavinia Masters Act is an act of courage. It's an act of beauty. It's history uh, in the making. It gives survivors now a tracking system, uh, which I would have loved to have had uh, back then to even know what's happening with my case. It gives them a mandatory 90-day process. Then it gives them up to a 50-year statute of limitation that doesn't start until that DNA is extracted and ran to start the process, which is beautiful because back then how we lost our time was as soon as the assault was uh, submitted, like mine was July 31st, 85, that's when my clock began. But now say if they didn't start, like if they didn't pick my kid up to 21 years later, that's when the clock begins. And so that's how I miss justice, but nobody else will miss justice from our failures of the past here in the state of Texas. And I'm excited about that. And then it also gives those uh, survivors that are not ready to come forward, though it gives them a five-year non-report, you know, moving forward with that, with that sexual assault before they decide, which I think is also a beautiful thing because you have to understand 
the mind of a victim of sexual violence. Everything is is out there, is is scattered, is fearful. I was afraid. My perpetrator, although I didn't know him, told me he knew my family. He would come back and kill us if he saw the police come. You know, all of this as I was getting older, it played in my mind. I began to become paranoid and things of that nature. So I think it's a good thing. And especially if it's somebody, if you've been to college with them and you're afraid what the family's going to say or if they have money or things of that nature. So uh, the Lavinia Masters Act does a lot for survivors of sexual violence. It takes away the excuses. That is such an incredible story. I mean, what a long, long journey. Well overdue but you finally got that liberation and that validation and not only again for yourself but you're actually changing the lives of so many other women's because of that and all this started with just you kind of a few phone calls right starting to call up different political figures and (laughs) government officials right yeah and and writing letters I still have some of my letters now uh, and the responses back and me going to the locus legislators as their as their constituent, I'm like, hey, you know, because I, I didn't know where to begin, but I just mm-hmm. jumped out there, you know. It helped that I had the media involved, and they loved they loved the whole idea that a survivor was willing to give their name and share the story publicly, and had no fear with doing it, and they could use them in that capacity, and they helped create the platform for me. I did it so freely because I also realized, I remember Ed Levendara, I'll never forget, I asked him with CNN because so many CNN since were coming to my house and I didn't, I don't watch CNN like that. So I asked Ed Levendara since he was local in Dallas, I said, can I ask you a question? I'm not trying to sound facetious or crass or anything. Uh, and he goes, sure, Lavinia. I said, what's the big deal now? Why are you guys all over my house and want to hear my story when I was ignored? before about being raped as a 13-year-old girl in the projects. What's the big deal? And Ed looked at me and he said, Lavinia, are you kidding me? He said, you're showing your face. You're like, tell them my name. I don't care who sees me. We don't have to just show your hands. We don't have to digitize your voice. He's like, you're all out there. You're daring your rapist to come back and mess with you. He said, we love, he said, you're fierce. He said, we normally don't get that from survivors of sexual violence. And it's usually we can't use their name. We can't do this. You're telling us we can show his picture. I'm like, yeah, shame on him. I carried his shame all these years. And I've learned, wait a minute, that wasn't my burden to bear. Shame on him. So let his family know your son, your grandson, your nephew, uncle, whatever, crawling through children's windows at nighttime, raping them with a knife. Shame on you. And I said, I had to learn that. So yeah, give it back. Give it back. Return to sender because it's that's not mine to bear. I'm so glad you mentioned that, that the shame is not the victims or the survivors to bear because that is something we all hear over and over and over again in therapy, right? The first thing they okay. say is it's not your fault when you're getting help, not necessarily through, like you said, the early stages right. through the legal system, right. unfortunately. Right. But right. once yes, you're- ma'am. But once you're on that healing journey and you're in a support group or you're seeing a therapist, that's all they say. It's not your fault. But right. how often do we actually believe that, especially right away, that that shame, <laughs> it's just so important to remember that shame is not ours to carry. That was the act of someone else. And that is their shame and their secret. So I love that you said that. How did you find out that your rape kit had not been tested after all those years? 
I found out because, you know, the Debbie Smith Act had passed in 2004, and it was the federal law for the rape kit backlog. There was a backlog. And I had been on my journey, and I remember going to my husband, and I said, you know, what would be beautiful is if I can find out who, because I was doing a self-published book, My Seven Steps of Faith and how I went to be, you know, overcome my, my trauma. And I said, well, it'd be perfect if I could find out who it was that raped me. My husband was like, wow. <laughs> you know, he's like, well, pray about it. And I said, okay. And so we prayed about it. And that was in February. We prayed about it. And in May, I saw the article uh, in the newspaper from the Dallas Police Department about the Debbie Smith Act funding. And because of that funding, if you know, they had started a program called CCAP, Sexual Assault Cold Case Program. And if you got a cold case, rape kit that was done from the 70s to the early 90, uh, late 90s, uh, Stranger on Stranger. They had a criteria. They said, reach out to us. We have the money to process your kit. And I said, well, let me call them because I don't even, I didn't even know where to begin. I had called before to the Dallas Police Department and I got like the runarounds. And so I left it alone and I'm like, okay, so this has to be the avenue. So when I called Lo and behold, that was the, the route to take at this point. And Sergeant Welsh, God bless him. I still love him today. He's retired, um, was a sergeant uh, over sex crimes at the time. He talked to me finally after three attempts of speaking to, to someone. And then he came out to visit me. They found my uh, case. It took that like two months to find my case. And then they end up finding my evidence. Took a few more months. And then when they came to do the buckle swab, he told me all the the bad news, Lavinia, if your perpetrator has never been a felon, that we may not get a hit because he won't sure. be coded. Right. And I was like, okay, okay. You know, I was fine with that. It's just the idea of you now investigating, you know, my my kit, because I found out it was sitting on a shelf when he told me it was there on a shelf. And I said, What do you mean sitting? Like because they said suspended was the word they used. He said, well, Lavinia, that means that we didn't do anything. I said, so basically my case was closed. I think it's important to mention too to our listeners that for victims of assault, the act itself is just the beginning, as we talked yeah. about. The process afterwards can be just as difficult in different ways. For starters, there's the choice of, do you come forward? Do you make a report? And then there's the rape kit, the intense examination, which I've heard many women describe as being violated all over again. And then there's the fear of pregnancy and STDs to worry about. And then, of course, the entire legal system down the road, which so rarely brings justice for victims. But what I want to point out here is you at only 13 made that difficult decision and had the bravery to come forward to report this and then also to do that violating examination only for the people in charge that were supposed to help you leave that kit on the shelf for years and years and decades, not even touched, not even tested. Yes, ma'am. Yes, ma'am. So you can imagine why. I get a little irritated when I think about Absolutely. it. The sexual assault, like you said, was heinous enough, but a child. I envisioned myself as that child in on that shelf and it was dark and everybody just walked by and walked by and allowed us to collect and in and out people have left, maybe died, gone on from that from that agency, but still somebody still saw that child sitting on that shelf and ignored me sitting there and it mm -hmm. kept going, they kept going. 
And not to mention just the act of believing a child or any victim. I mean, you mentioned that from the very beginning. They weren't even believing you. Their questions were really based around, well, how is this actually your fault? And and what aren't you telling us? Instead of just believing you, just believing the child makes all the difference. Now, once your kit was tested, did the DNA end up matching any other kits? Was he found in the system? He was found in the system. I don't know if it matched other kits, but we knew that he was a serial rapist and that he had violated before. And he was actually arrested eight months after my assault. I think it was eight months and tried to match it up with my evidence. Uh, or I obviously didn't run him through CODIS so or however that process worked. But uh, and then find out he went to prison. He served 10 years. He got out 10 years, still didn't match him with me or any of my evidence, violated an elderly woman, broke into her house, raped her at knife point, same MO, 10 years later after he was uh, in prison. And uh, he went back to prison. And about time my stuff went public was like 2005, the end of 2005. He was coming up for parole. And he probably would have gotten parole because the Texas laws then he was able to plea down, which meant he didn't take the sexual assaults. He took the burglary of habitation and he took the carjacking. And so he probably, that's how he only served 10 years the first time. So he probably would have gotten out again, but now I'm all over CNN, all over the news, the media, and basically making a mockery out of the justice system that we have here. And so he was offset in 2006 and he has actually been offset ever since then i stopped i stopped protesting because chief conco sergeant welsh other friends protested his parole as well uh in 2006 and he was denied of course i stopped protesting in 2009 because there were other survivors a part of the ccap program we got together and we uh helped formulate a law with uh, uh senator corona at the time where I can't remember the house bill number right now, but it's a uh, it's it's a law today where if a cold case is involved with the sexual crimes, that it goes on the perpetrator's DNA if they weren't able to be prosecuted, such as ours. And so that DNA is on their records. That was a major plus for us then to have that even you know scratch the surface of trying to help victims of sexual violence but yeah them blaming us and making us feel like they didn't believe us was awful because that's what that's what you feel you don't believe me you don't believe me or in me as a person and that's 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 gut-wrenching that's really especially to a child you know and so to see the changes now is amazing and we have to keep raising awareness about it and we have to keep speaking up about it because if not, I'm a believer that history can repeat itself. The numbers can grow again. Things can get out of order because the voices uh, go back to silence and we remain in that space of being a taboo and we can't allow that to happen. And real quick, to make sure I understand this, going back to the DNA and the kits, if the mm-hmm. kit had been tested, your kit had been tested in a timely matter would that have helped prevent other potential rapes and crimes? Yes, yes. yes ma'am. So if our listeners take nothing else from this yes, extremely important episode, yes, that ma'am. is just, I mean, yes, ma'am. no wonder they have a law named after you. This is crucial. 
I mean, how infuriating very, is that? Oh my gosh. Very infuriating. And it's so important. And I tried to really promote survivors or victims at the time if they are violated, if they are in that position. And I know it's scary. I know it's heinous. I know we're filled with a lot of fear. I lived it. But that evidence is so important. It's so crucial. And we are fighting and changing laws and doing things where we can we can hold these perpetrators accountable. And even if you want to do the non-report, you have five years, but that same evidence, I don't care if you did know him, you went to college with him, if it was Pawpaw, whomever it is, I'm pretty sure that you're not the first, or if you were the first, you're not the last. Right. Uh, and I, I'm not trying to sound crass. I don't think they just wake up one day and say, oh, I'm going to go rape somebody. Oh, I'm done. I didn't like how that fit, how that felt. I don't believe that's their 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 sick mind, but I believe it's sick. So that evidence, getting that evidence, going to the police, making that report, uh, even if you don't want to go to the police, you have places like Courtney's Safe Place with a turning point uh, where they have their own facility going and just get that exam and get that evidence so we can have it. It's crucial. It is crucial to have. And we're giving you back control by allowing you to track that kit and, and know what's going on step by step throughout the process. Lavinia and I had so much material to cover when it comes to the law passed in her name, her advocacy for sexual assault survivors, her childhood, and even her personal life that we decided to convert this interview into two podcast episodes. So we hope to see you again as we discuss the incredible Lavinia Masters, a.k.a. Justice Barbie, part two next time. Thanks for tuning in. This podcast is something that we do for fun. It is not directly associated to my day job, which is founder and executive director of the nonprofit The Usual Art Specs. However, if you would like to donate to our nonprofit, all funds go directly towards providing art therapy and other resources for female survivors of sexual trauma and domestic violence. We greatly appreciate your consideration and support. To donate, please go to www.theusualartspecs.com. You can also find us on Facebook as The Usual Art Specs and Instagram as the usual art specs dfw our podcast also has its own instagram account to stay up to date on new episodes follow us at trauma barbie podcast bye barbie